This is another MP3 podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle, Australia. Easy listening, 2NURFM 103.7. It's a Thursday afternoon. It's 10 past midday. That makes it time for Finance Talkback as we welcome mm-hmm. Barry Preston. Good afternoon to you, Barry. Good afternoon, David. And good afternoon to all our listeners. We're very, very privileged today to have a, a guest by the name of Hamish Douglas. Now, Hamish is the Chief Executive Officer of Magellan Financial Group, also the Portfolio Manager for the Magellan Global Fund and one of the top performing equity funds in 2008, which was quite challenging, so there you are. And at the same time, winning the Money Management Lonsec Fund Manager of the Year Award in a category of global equities. With more than 18 years of financial services experience before establishing the Magellan Group, Hamish was co-head of the global banking at Deutsche Bank in Australasia. And currently, he is a member of the Australian Government Takeovers Panel, and in a recent highlight of Hamish, or for Hamish, was to receive an invitation to join the World Economic Forum's Young Global Leaders. Now, apparently, I believe this is the group that has the potential to contribute to shaping the future of the world, and I'm hoping that they do a better job than what happened recently. (laughs) Anyway, Hamish, how are you? I'm very well, Barry. How are you? I'm very well indeed. Tell me, how's that big parking lot down there in Sydney? Um, It's a bit overcast down here, and I'm sure it's much sunnier in Newcastle. Uh, No, we have a similar sort of uh, cloud level up here, I think. Okay, today uh, we've been getting a number of uh, discussions or comments from clients concerning global investing. Look, do we just look at investing in Australia or should we look elsewhere, you know? When we do plans, uh, depending on a person's risk profile, there's always something that comes up that says, look, you should hold a certain amount of percentage of your portfolio in uh, international investment. But with the results from international securities, it's been very disappointing. So why invest there? Look, first of all, Barry, I'd say that the Australian market, realistically, is only about 2% of the total world market, and therefore international equities offer a much wider choice of investment opportunities and opportunities that are likely to be exposed to different economic factors and particularly growth factors in the future. This Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that owning all equity investments in Japan or the United States in general is going to turn out to be a good investment, but there is a huge universe of investment opportunities that aren't available here in this market. Very true. Now, what we'll do is we'll look at some of these markets down the tracks and we'll get a little bit more in detail, but it's a personal decision, of course, and as you said, um, I think our market's probably 1.2 and 2%, as you said. Uh, So if we just stuck to the Australian market, we'd certainly be missing some opportunities. Now, Uh, sorry? No, sorry, go on. Uh, We'd be missing some opportunities, no doubt about it. So I'm very keen, here I am, I'm very keen to buy some stocks in an overseas market. Let's look, how would I contact a broker? Uh, how would I exercise my uh, opportunity to buy these shares? I've got to find a broker, set up a trade. How would we do this? I mean, there's a lot of documentation, is there not? Look, the first of all thing you, you, you'd need to do is you'd need to really find an Australian-based stockbroker who can deal in overseas uh, investments. Uh, if you wanted to go to an offshore stockbroker, it's very, very complex now because all the anti-money laundering uh, laws post, uh, post sort of the terrorist attacks in, in 2001, it's actually very hard for an investor to go directly to an offshore broker. Therefore, you have to really stay with a broker here who can deal offshore. That broker would then typically be able to deal in an offshore security for you, 
But the issue you then have with a local broker is they don't follow any of these companies offshore and they, uh, they won't be in a position to give a, an investor in Australia any advice. They're really just to execute something that the investor wants to invest in themselves. And I have found, having done it for a few of my clients, that uh, some of the markets overseas, uh, if you want to hold the physical stock, they actually send you the certificate by mail. If you want to sell it, you've actually got to sign documents which must be perfect and send the script back to that broker to sell. So there's a huge delay. Also, what about the currency situation? What happens there? I mean, how do you manage that? Well, you're starting to introduce, you know, the complexity of, uh, of offshore uh, investing. And, you know, it, it really is fairly uh, complex for a unsophisticated uh, investor. You, you mentioned about having to hold, and if you invest in the United States, you actually will get a physical share certificate uh, that you mentioned. But you could actually appoint an, a custodian. But that means you have to enter into an arrangement with a, with a bank who is a custodian. And that costs money and fees and agreements and and things for people to hold your share certificates on on your behalf. Uh, you, me- you mentioned currency, but the one thing that really gets me is tax in offshore uh, investing. I should uh, mention to you that, you know, if you wanted to buy shares in, say, Nestle, which we think is a great company based in Switzerland, when they pay a dividend, the Swiss tax authorities are very kind that they take out a huge amount of dividend withholding tax out of your um, out of your dividend. And in order to get that tax back... You have to go and then make an application to the Swiss tax authorities and fill out a whole series of Swiss tax forms in order to get your dividend withholding uh, tax uh, back. And then when you want to go and sell an investment, if you have these physical share certificates that you mentioned, you're going to have to go and find those and get them to the broker. And that can often cause quite a bit of delay or you need to interact with a custodian that you've um, you've appointed. You've just turned me off. So obviously a more convenient and easy way for clients to invest overseas is by way of managed funds. Hamish, let's let's take a look at how a managed fund operates and uh, some international companies that you may know quite well. So let's have a look. How does a managed fund operate, an international managed fund? Well, well a managed fund is really taking the complexity out of mm-hmm. investing uh, overseas. The uh, the, the managed fund or the fund manager, it goes on and appoints the custodians and it has direct relationships with all offshore uh, brokers and it looks after all these complex tax issues. When you're investing in a um, managed fund, you will simply get a regular statement uh, from your fund manager and each year you'll get one tax statement and all the complexity of the tax issues have been dealt with, uh, dealt uh, for you. Um, and, of course, the, the, the managed fund has a team of analysts and people who are analysing all these offshore mm. uh, investments, and they're doing the work and they're making the selection of which investments um, uh, to make. And it's, it's really a very simple process uh, through a managed fund because the complexity is taken out of it for you. Fantastic. Well, look, we're talking today with Hamish Douglas, who is the Chief Executive of Magellan Financial Group and also the Portfolio Manager for the Magellan Global Fund. Now, you've got these funds. You've got all my funds. Um, how would you look at doing this investment process? Uh, obviously, there are many investment styles, just to name a few. You've got growth investment, bottom-up, top-down, value. I believe you use the value approach. What, what is this, the value approach, investing in international stocks? Well, our approach to value is, is simply to ensure that you're buying the investment with an acceptable, what we would call a margin of safety, And that is really we want to buy a share for less than we actually think it's worth. And that's what actually generates an attractive investment return 
for our investors. If you buy an investment for more than it's worth, it's very unlikely you're going to generate an attractive return on mm-hmm. that investment. So the value is simply about the price you pay uh, for an investment. Okay, so you've found an international company that fits your value approach. Is that all you do? We just buy into it or, or not? Well, believe it or not, we, our investment approach actually doesn't start with value. That's where we end the game in making a decision. We actually start by analysing the companies which we believe have very long-term competitive advantages and earn attractive returns on their capital and have to be operating in areas in which we believe are very well positioned for long-term growth. Hmm. For instance, we like a number of very well-managed global consumer companies like Nestle and Coca-Cola, which are also likely to benefit over not only the next 10 but probably 20 years from the emergence of another billion consumers in the world in markets like China, India and Brazil. So we very much start with what are the types of companies we want to invest in. We then make a decision whether we want to purchase them, and that comes to value at the end. But we don't start with value. We start with where do we want to invest, what are the types of companies. Okay. Look, you found a company, uh, you've taken steps to buy into it. How do you actually do that sort of thing? Could you just take us through a little step? Say Nestle. Bang, we're going to buy Nestle. You're going to buy Nestle. What would you do? Um, once we've made a decision to, yes. um, to, to invest in uh, a Nestle, we, we would then have to determine the price at which we want to invest in Nestle. Mm. We, we, we follow a lot of companies around the world that we would love over time to invest in. Some of those companies are just too expensive to invest in right. at times. So we tend to be very, very patient and wait for opportunities to invest in a company when we can generate returns. When that opportunity comes up, uh, we then have a, we, we, we have a trading uh, person who will interact with our stockbrokers around the world um, to purchase uh, an investment in that company. And we, 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 we do it all electronically, actually, on, uh, directly out of our offices, which interact with the other office stockbrokers around the world, uh, which we will then execute orders and then they'll get settled by our administration people and they'll end up, the stocks will be held with the custodians. Um, uh, that we have operating for us around the world. Hamish, would you tell us and tell all our listeners about some companies that you would invest in, some specific companies? Uh, look, I, I've alluded this to in an, in an earlier uh, answer. We're, we're really wanting to invest in what we think are very strong multinational consumer franchises mm-hmm. that are likely to benefit from what we would say is the emergence of the next one billion consumers uh-huh. in these very attractive emerging markets like China, India and Brazil over the next 10 and 20 uh, years. And I mentioned when I said that uh, Nestle and Coca-Cola are particularly two very attractive companies. I was also uh, mentioned other companies that are likely to benefit from this as well, companies like McDonald's, a business called Yum Brands that actually owns KFC, Pizza Hut and Taco Bell around the world. People probably think I'm a fast food uh, <laughs> junkie. Uh, uh, we've got companies like Unilever uh, based out of the UK, Procter & Gamble, which is probably the world's best consumer products company, very well positioned in China, PepsiCo that of course owns PepsiCo and, and Gatorade, but they own, they own the, the world's largest potato chip franchise. They've got nearly 70% market share in Australia. Mm. Uh, A French company called Danone. There's a whole series of these multinational consumer franchises that we think are great companies and just very well positioned, not over the next six or 12 months, but literally over a period of 20 years ahead. And when people go into the supermarkets, obviously some of those companies that you mentioned would have products on the supermarket shelves? 
yeah, in Australia? I, I think Australians are certainly missing the opportunity to invest in some of these outstanding global companies, and many of them are operating uh, in Australia, and, and, and investors have the opportunity to share in these profits that they're making from around the world, but also that they're making uh, from uh, from Australia. I mentioned Procter & Gamble. Probably people don't know that Procter & Gamble owns Gillette, and they own Olay. Uh, and they own Pringles, and, and, and a company in the UK we've invested in, com- which people probably never heard of, called Reckitt uh, Benkiser. Reckitt Benkiser owns franchises like Mortine and Nappysan and the Finnish dishwashing tablets and Nurofen mm. uh, and Dettol, some of these fabulous brands that people are consuming every day in their lives, but you cannot invest in these brands on the Australian stock market. Amish, look... Uh, do you have any major countries that you would not consider any investments in and why? But, uh, by that, I, I don't mean sort of a, a USA company that's uh, uh, got a tent factory in Zimbabwe or something like that. I mean, would you not invest in some countries? Look, I, I wouldn't invest directly in companies like uh, Russia, North Korea or Venezuela. At, at the end of the day, we're, we're ultimately concerned about you know political risk and, and risk where you could have your assets expropriated. Uh, from you. Um, and, you know, countries like Venezuela and Russia have not had a good track record um, in, 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 in looking after the interests of, uh, of shareholders, and therefore we would be cautious in, in owning a business that's predominantly Russian or predominantly Venezuelan. There are other smaller countries as well that I'd put in that, in that, in that bucket, but it's, it's those types of issues we would think about. Okay, now, here we are. You've got your fund going. Do you have a limit on the number of companies that you would make up the portfolio? I mean, you wouldn't buy hundreds or thousands of various types of countries. You have a limit, of course? Yeah, well, at Magellan, we, we, we do. We have a very strict view on this. We, we, we would hold around 25 stocks in our, um, in our, in our portfolio. And, and, and the simple analogy here is um, we, we, we view a portfolio like a football team, and you have to have the best team on the paddock to have a chance of winning the, the grand final. And I've mentioned some very, very fine companies um, that we think are very well positioned for the long term. If we have an irrelevant amount of money and we've only got 1% of our money in a company like Nestle, whether we're right or wrong on Nestle isn't going to make any difference to our investors once you own 100 stocks in the portfolio. But if we have... 5 or 10% of our portfolio, maybe 10 is a little too high, but say 5% in a company like Nestle and it right. does very, very well, yeah. it's going to make a meaningful difference. And therefore, we believe in concentration of around 25 stocks in a portfolio. How would you get to know the companies you invest in? I mean, the management staff and its operations. I, I believe you're a bit of a world traveller. Do you visit them at all? Do you get to know them? Uh, y- y- yes, we do. We, first of all, we really start by reading everything we can about a, a company, the industry and the competitors in the, the industry. We do, we do a lot of in-depth research. We have, you know, we have 10 analysts on our team who are doing that every day uh, of their lives. And of course, you mentioned, we actually then go and visit the companies. Um, and we travel overseas very, very frequently, and we sit down with the chief executives and the and the people and the chief financial officers and the people who are running these companies. But you need to have done a lot of homework first, because to have a meaningful discussion about a company and where it's going, you need to understand a lot about that company and its and the uh, and the industry and the competitors in that in that industry. But we we do a lot of 
uh, traveling to go and see these these companies. Okay, so you, you travel around the world, and on your travels uh, with your research, you find uh, a company that fits all your criteria in one country, and then in another country, you find a different company but in the same industry, both outstanding com- uh, companies from your research. Um, I'm in your analyst team. How would we sit down and analyse to which one we invest in? Or would we put, instead of putting, say, 100% of a million dollars, we put 500000 each? What, is that what we do or not? Well, you're, you're actually describing a situation that arises very often in, in our analysis. We, we, we tend to tend towards similar types of companies, and we look for those types of companies. Once we've found one that has fantastic characteristics, we're trying to find others that have uh, fantastic characteristics, and we tend to go around the world looking for those types of um, uh, uh, businesses. I, I mentioned earlier and a few comments ago that we view this as a football team. We've got 25 slots on the uh, on the team, and if we find two very similar companies in the same industry, um, we'll make an assessment whether we buy one of them, both of them, or, or none of them. We have to make an assessment whether that investment is attractive enough to get on the the team that we're uh, we're running. It may well be that they're both very attractive, both are going to generate very good returns, and we're going to buy both those investments. But they actually have to be better than other investments we could make within that 25 stocks on the on the team, and, and we're continuously weighing up those uh, those decisions. But we don't have a hard and fast rule that if we find one company that's really good and we've got one of those in the portfolio, we won't invest in another one. Um, uh, we're really making mm-hmm. an assessment whether it gets onto the team. Special guest, Hamish Douglas, Chief Executive Officer of the Magellan Financial Group and the Portfolio Manager of the Magellan Global Fund. And obviously we're talking about international securities, whether we should invest in international securities or not. But Hamish... Investors really don't like funds turning over their stocks because they can create capital gains and things like that. Do you find that a bit of an issue or not? Look, in our view, investors should hate fund managers regularly turning over their uh, portfolios. We're we're not playing a game of gin rummy here. Um, You know, and I think you've pointed out, you know, in in a rising stock market, turning over a portfolio regularly is going to inflict a lot of capital gains tax on investors, the the interest-free loan you get from a government on on capital gains tax is very uh, valuable, and by not turning over the portfolio, you're delaying that inevitable payment of that capital gains tax. Not only that, you have a currency risk, and obviously, with managed funds investing internationally, brings this up. How do you guys manage this Australian current of the well, the currency risk? Full stop. Oh, look, managed funds can, can either run a hedged fund or an unhedged fund, as in run the currency risk or not run the currency risk. At Magellan, we're, we're running the global fund on an unhedged basis, and therefore the investors are exposed to the level of the uh, Australian dollar. Um, we don't think that is necessarily a bad thing for investors with an investment portfolio. The Australian dollar actually tends to be inversely or negatively correlated with economic activity and therefore in times of economic turmoil an unhedged fund will tend to perform better than a one that is fully hedged against the Australian dollar because when the economies are turning down the Australian dollar will tend to fall and when it falls the value of your offshore investments um, will will increase. Um, so we think it's a prudent part of a, a strategy of having some part of your portfolio unhitched to the Australian dollar, and, that, and that's what we're offering investors. Hey, Miss, you do a lot of travelling overseas, uh, obviously uh, quite regularly. 
Do you see current in, the current investment scene in various countries like the USA, USA companies? How do you fo- how do you see them at the moment? Let's look at some of these various countries. The USA companies. How do you find them at the moment? Look, I, I find in any markets it's very difficult to generalise about a specific market and saying USA companies or Jap- Japanese companies or UK companies are great or bad investments. Um, uh, to make. At the end of the day in the United States there are a great many number of multinational firms that we think are very attractively um, priced at the moment and we think they are really going to benefit from um, the emerging market growth in for years and years uh, to come. But that doesn't mean that the entire United States market is a great place to have your money invested. And I make very similar comments around having your money in the UK or Japan or, or any of these markets, it's just very dangerous to generalise and make statements, I'm going to put my money in a particular market. Um, mm. you, at the end of the day, you put your money in particular companies and it will depend what those companies are actually doing and how well the company is positioned. Now, with China and India, huge populations, um, and they're emerging uh, markets and so forth, they'd probably have better opportunities than, say, the UK at the moment, do you think, from an emerging market point of view? Well, yes, we do. We we, we think the major developed countries of the world, like the UK and the United States, we think their growth rates over the next 10 or 15 years are going to be quite subdued and actually much lower than we've seen over the last 10 or 15 years, and we think that is very, very likely to happen in the major emerging markets that you've mentioned, India, In China, we actually think uh, they're very likely to grow at much higher rates. So as a general comment, skewing your investment universe to companies that are well positioned in India and China is a very, very interesting place um, uh, to start thinking in an investment sense. But then again, as you said before, there are a lot of American companies that invest in these countries. So by investing, say, when when I mentioned in US companies, uh, companies, uh, not specifically that are trading in the US, but they are also trading in China and India. That's what you're looking at. Is that correct? Yes, that, that's what we are looking at. And I mentioned earlier on a, a business called Yum Brands, and Yum Brands owns KFC, Pizza Hut, and Taco Bell. You know, Pizza Hut and Taco Bell and, and KFC are well known to most investors in Australia, but people probably don't realise that this company already has 30% of its earnings coming out of China and has about 3,000 predominantly KFC restaurants in China and they earn very, very attractive returns. Over the next 15 years or so, the company's plans are to roll out from 3,000 to 15 to 20,000 KFC restaurants in the country and it's already the most recognised foreign brand in the country. I mean KFC, not Yum Brands. So Mm. there are some very, very interesting multinational firms that already have very substantial operations in some of these major emerging markets. Look, um, you mentioned KFC in China and that sort of thing. Um, obviously, there are other uh, companies operate or owned by, say, com- uh, countries in Switzerland, um, UK, that are doing the same sort of thing. Is this what you guys go around the world looking for? We, we do go around the looking. It's not solely looking for that, but we, we think that is a very, very interesting place to to be 
looking for investment opportunities. Of course, we have a few companies in Australia that are going to be well positioned for that type of growth, and BHP would probably be one of those companies that is very well positioned over the long term, but it's a resource company, but well positioned for what's going on in China and India as an exporter of resources to those countries. But in most countries around the world, you can find other types of businesses that are going to be um, well exposed. You know, Coca-Cola, Nestle based in Switzerland. You mentioned Switzerland. Nestle is actually based in Switzerland. Uh, it has nearly 35% of its sales revenue coming out of these major emerging markets already, and they've been in China for, uh, I believe, 130 years. Nestle. Oh, sorry, I missed that. Yeah, go on, give me uh, for, for, for Nestle. So yeah. there, there are many of these companies around the world, if you go looking for them, um, that are well positioned in our view, for what's going to happen in the major emerging markets. This isn't the sole place you can, you can look for to, 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 to look for investments if you're interested in emerging markets, but it's just a flavour for what we're doing in, mm. in how we're approaching that, that equation. Okay. Now, look, obviously, when you're tripping around the world, and uh, a question, you travel, you do a lot of overseas travel. Do you see any evidence of people from overseas wanting to invest or asking you questions about wanting to invest in Australia? Do you see that coming up a lot? Look, I, I think we have to be realistic as uh, as Australians. Of course, we uh, we travel overseas and we talk to a lot of people, but uh, I think you you mentioned earlier on in uh, that the Australian market is only one to two percent of the of the of, of the world market, and we need to put that in in context. Where where I speak to overseas investors, where they where they have most interest in Australia, is our Australian companies that actually have more global style businesses, and and our leading resource companies is an area where the offshore investors would have the greatest amount of interest. So companies like BHP and Rio Tinto and Woodside and others. Not that I'm recommending investments in any no, no, no. companies yeah. I've mentioned today. No. Um, but the, the, these companies are of more interest to the global investors because essentially they are global companies that just happen to be listed and based in Australia. Hamish, it's been great having you on today. And as uh, we've said before, that we were talking, or we are talking with Hamish Douglas, the Chief Executive Officer of the Magellan Financial Group and the Portfolio Manager for the Magellan Global Fund. Hamish, one question. Uh, as we read your, uh, intro at, we read out at your introduction, uh, that you have an invitation to join the World Economic Forum's Young Global Leaders. What's this all about? Well, I've recently been invited to uh, to join the uh, the forum's Young Global Leaders uh, program, and I'm actually going to. It's only a recent invitation I've received. I'm in September. I'm actually going to uh, one of their first gathering, and I understand there's about 200 of uh, people around the world on have been invited to join this program, and I'm actually going to China um, in September for five days to join a a forum of discussion of these people about what China really means. Uh, for the world uh, and where China is headed and how other countries can benefit um, from from what's going on uh, in uh, in China. And they have meetings all around the world discussing the, these issues. They could be environmental issues, investment issues, demographic issues, whole series of issues that have been grappled with um, around the world and they're trying to get input on a multinational basis from um, from people and, and they're seeking some contribution from a younger generation than, than maybe people who would attend the, 
a famous forum that's called the Davos Forum, which is held in late January each year, which is typically chief executives and people like Bill Gates and so forth who would be, I'm, I'm obviously not at that level, would be invited to that. Oh, not necessarily. Come on now, not necessarily. <laughs> it, would be very, it would be very nice to, but I, I very much, um, it, it's a great honour and it would be great to be part of a forum to discuss those issues, particularly as a... Uh, 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 running a company that's investing in offshore markets. You have to take a very global perspective. Fantastic. And one more question before you go. You mentioned the pronunciation Nestle. When I was growing up, it was nestled. What's, uh, what's happened there? Do you remember that, nestled? Would you remember the word nestled? No? No, no. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've heard people say nestled before, but uh, when, when I see them in Switzerland, they say nestle. Yeah, I know. It used to be nestled. Well, that's how we used to pronounce it. They, they've got a range of noodles, which we call magi in Australia, yeah. and they call it magi. Oh. Uh, magi. So I, I, I think pronunciation, uh, <laughs> we, we often get wrong. Okay, look, uh, as uh, we say goodbye, and uh, thank you very much on behalf of uh, 2NURFM 103.7, all the listeners in the Hunter Valley. Thank you very much, uh, Hamish, for being our guest today, and we'll look forward to seeing and hearing from you again. Absolute pleasure, Barry. Thank you. Thank you. And one little thing I forgot to mention, our general statement that any comments made during our program on any investment strategy or product is based on general discussion. You should consider your own situation before making any financial investment decision and seek advice from your own financial, legal or taxation advisor. And a product disclosure statement relating to financial products that we may discuss should be obtained and considered before you make any decision to acquire that particular product. Mm. The markets, as we have seen lately, have been getting a little bit stronger, going up and down, but they're still skittish. There's no doubt about that. Any uh, news that comes through like today, um, the markets have dropped back something like 60 or 70 points. Why? Because the American market went down 80 points, 85 mm. points. Yet if the American market sometimes goes up 200-odd points, ours might go up 50 points. Um also, I had a phone call from a client this morning to say, why did the National Bank drop 112 cents? Uh, well, the, one of the reasons why the National Bank dropped a large amount this morning is that its shares went ex-dividend. What that means is a company at a certain time of the year will announce its profit and at the same time, if it's been successful, will announce a dividend. Once that's done, the share becomes what's called cumulative dividend, mm-hmm. CD, even though... I won't go into too much detail, but cumulative dividend. In other words, it's got the dividend based into the share price. Now, that will remain CD or cumulative dividend up to the day that the share goes ex-dividend. What does ex-dividend mean? If you sold the share one day before ex-dividend, the buyer gets the share, the dividend, not the seller. If you sell it on the day of ex-dividend up until the dividend's paid, the seller keeps the dividend. Oh, okay. So that's what that means, basically. Thank you for having me in your lounge room or wherever, and uh, keep safe, everybody.